Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. Wow, first of all, how great was that last song? Oh my goodness. Would you all give Matt and Ava and the band... Uh, they're phenomenal, honestly. We're, we're super lucky to be able to be led by them. Um, we're officially one week less than one week away from Christmas. How's everybody feeling? I'm really asking. How you feeling? One word to describe it. Good? Yeah, digging deep there. Digging deep. What? Awesome? Awesome. Ready, definitely. Anxious. Overwhelmed. Yeah, now we're getting honest, okay? We're like three or four in. We're getting honest. You know, the older I get, the more I realize that the holidays are kind of this emotional roller coaster, right? And more than any other time of year, I think we have this tendency to vacillate between joy and heartache, between feeling surrounded by love and family and feeling kind of all alone. And Christmas time isn't easy for a lot of people, and even as much as I love Christmas, I have to admit it's not always an easy time for me either. In fact, confession time, sometimes I think I, I like lean so far into all the like trappings and the awesomeness of Christmas to just avoid having to deal with the things that make me sad or mad or anxious this time of year. I'm probably alone in that. Probably nobody else does that. But here's the thing. Even amidst all the kind of glitz and glam of Christmas, hard times remain. This is simply the reality of living in a world that is broken. But as much as we would like to kind of bury our head in the red and green sand this time of year, the red and green sand, I don't know if y'all caught that, but it's like Christmas sand. All right, we we'll, won't we'll do that joke again. As much as we'd like to just kind of immerse ourselves in Christmas to block out all the negative times, uh, negative things this time of year, Christmas was really never meant to be like this distraction from the world around us. This, this thing where we kind of block out all of the pain. I love the way Pastor Meredith Miller says it. She says this, Christmas is not here to offer a four-week escape from the pain of the world with a paper-thin layer of twinkly lights. It is not here to anesthetize us with bows and eggnog lattes. Christmas is not offering us the chance to escape the ache of life through piles of presents. You see, Christmas is God saying, yes, this pain is too much. Yes, it is too sad. Yes, the ache is too great, but hang on. I'll come carry it with you. See, that is the story of Christmas. In his account of Jesus' life, John, Jesus' best friend, puts it like this. The word, that was his nickname for Jesus. Jesus became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. 
See, God said, I hear you, I see you, and I'm coming to be with you. And so he put on flesh and came to earth as Jesus. And as John said, he became human, and he made his home among us. And what did he bring with him? Faithfulness and love that will never fail. So to help us remember and celebrate Jesus making his home among us, last week we started this two-part teaching series called Christmas Hymns. Last Sunday we talked about Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and today we're going to talk about that song we just sang together, O Holy Night. And I've been so excited to talk about this song specifically with y'all because it is so packed with beautiful music and lyrics as we all just experienced together. And the story behind this Christmas hymn that I'm about to share with you is truly incredible. So let's dive in. O Holy Night story begins in the 1840s in a small town in southern France. The Catholic church in the small town of Roquemarat was having their organ repaired. And this was actually a process. I don't know if you know much about 19th century organ repair. I didn't. But this is a process that could take multiple years. Like this was a long process. And as the repair kind of dragged on, the parish priest decided that they needed some kind of really special way to premiere the renovated organ when it was done. I feel that, right? It's like, this has been rough. Everybody's mad at me. Let's do something really cool at the end of it to try to make it really fun. And so the repairs were set to be completed around Christmas time. So the priest asked this local poet named Placide Capot and a local composer named Adolph Adams to work together to create this new Christmas song. And the goal was to debut the song at Midnight Mass on Christmas 1847 with the new revitalized organ playing the music and a famous opera singer named Emily Laurie singing the lyrics. And the plan was executed flawlessly. And the song, originally called Cantique de Noël, was a huge hit, not only in that little parish in that small town in France, but all over the country. But the song's popularity, it actually quickly became an issue with the Catholic Church, especially after they found out that neither of the men who wrote it were Catholics, or really probably even Christians. In 1864, a Catholic journal published an article about it saying, this is real, I saw the original print, it might be a good thing to discard this piece, Oh Holy Night, Cantique de Noel as it was known at the time, it might be a good thing to discard this piece whose popularity is becoming unhealthy. It is sung in the streets, social gatherings, and at bars with live entertainment. Imagine. It becomes debased and degenerated. The best would be to let it go its own way, far from houses of religion, which can do very well without it. I'm so glad that didn't happen. Because despite the church's best efforts to bury the song, the French people continued to embrace it. And about a decade later, the song made its way across the pond to these United States of America. And that's where we meet a guy named John Sullivan Dwight. John Sullivan Dwight was a Harvard College and Divinity School graduate who started out his career as a pastor in the Boston area of Massachusetts. But John had a problem. You see, every time John stood up in front of his congregation to preach, he had a massive panic attack. <laughs> Things got so bad and he was so unable to continue that he eventually locked himself in the parsonage, would not answer the door, was afraid to go out in public. But John was so talented, and so his people came around him and said, hey, you don't even have to speak or preach. Or, we, we just love you. We want you to offer the gifts that you have to the church and to the world. Don't feel like a need to conform to somebody else's expectation 
of what you're supposed to be. And so at the encouragement of people who loved him, Dwight decided that preaching was probably not a vocation for him and returned to his first love, which was music. And he founded something called Dwight's Journal of Music, and he spent the next three decades reviewing and publishing songs from all over the world, introducing the American people to a number of songs that otherwise we probably never would have heard. And in 1855, he came across Cantique de Noël in French. And he was so moved by it, especially by verse 3, which we're going to talk about in just a second, that he decided to translate it into English, and O Holy Night, as we know it today, was born. So here's how it goes. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. I think one of the most powerful things about this song is how it immediately immerses you into the story. This is not just some random night, right? It's a holy night. If you've been around church for a while, you know holy means set apart. And this night is set apart because it's the one in which God has chosen to break through into our world. Like John said in the passage a minute ago, Jesus put on flesh and made his home among us. That happened on this night. Next, it says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. So that first line is a reference to the story of humanity kind of up until the coming of Jesus. The entirety of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, is story after story of God pursuing humanity with his love and humanity kind of shunning it in favor of power and greed and autonomy. But as we wallowed in our brokenness, God didn't look down on the world and say, I've done everything I can. They are on their own now. I am done trying to help. No, he looked down on a world that was broken and filled with weary people, and he said, hang on, my beloved children, I'm coming. I'm on my way. And when he arrived, I love this song, it says, at that moment, our souls felt their worth. One of the things that I love most about my job is, is meeting new people and hearing their stories. I get to do it almost every single week. I can't tell you how many people I talk to who have been told that they do not have worth, that they are worth less. And a lot of times it was by pastors, Christians. Sometimes it was because of a specific characteristic that they had, or other times it was under this guise of like original sin, which actually has nothing to do at all with having worth or not. But you see, whatever the reason, the result is the same. So many people carry these feelings of worthlessness before God with them. But here's the thing, y'all. Nothing could be further from the truth. Scripture teaches that every single person has been made in the image of God and carries with them a spark of the divine inside. I love C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. I love that. There are no ordinary people. You have never interacted with someone who was a mere mortal. You have only interacted with people who bear the fullness of God's image, who carry a spark of divinity within them. That fact alone should be enough to dispel the lies of worthlessness in any human. You have unimaginable worth. In fact, you are so valuable to God that he put on flesh, came to earth, lived, died, and came back to life so that he could be in a deep relationship with you 
with you, with you as an individual person and with us as a community of humans. Like Paul says to the church in Rome, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us so much that even as we wallowed in sin and struggle, he died for us. And I'm here to tell you that even on your worst day, he would do it again. He would do it again. Because you matter to him. You have inherent worthiness. Listen to me, my friends. You have inherent worthiness, not because of what you do, but because of who you are. A person made in the image of God. That is where you get your worth. It's not about what kind of job you have, who your family is, how much money you have, what your kids are like. None of that. You have inherent worthiness because you were made in the image of God. And he loves you so much. And that's why on that holy night, it says in the next line, the weary world rejoices. It says, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Like I said, we live in a, in a world, in a society, where our value is often determined by achievement. What we do for a living, how much money we have, our, how well our kids perform, where we live, what we drive, how we look, etc. I'm here to tell you, that's not how we were meant to live. This endless cycle, Brene Brown calls it a race to nowhere. I love that. This race to nowhere that so many of us find ourselves running is exhausting. It makes us weary. But in the midst of our weariness, in the depth of our brokenness, Jesus breaks in. And what happens? A thrill of hope. A thrill of hope. I love how vivid this line is. When something thrills us, right, it courses through our body uncontrollably. I think about being on a roller coaster and, and coming up, right, to that big drop, and then you get over the top and you go down it. They always have cameras in those spots, right? You see the things later, the picture capturing the thrill of people, the thrill on their faces. But depending on how you're wired, the thrill of a roller coaster might be joyous, but it also might be terrifying, right? But this lyric is talking about a thrill of hope, a thrill of goodness, of joy, this is a really dumb example, so prepare yourself. But the last time recently I can really remember experiencing a thrill of hope was a few weeks ago. Matt Gonzalez, our, our worship community pastor, took me to lunch for my birthday. And we went to Home Slice Pizza. And we were talking, we were ordering and all this stuff. And, you know, Matt tells the waitress, oh, it's, it's his birthday. And the waitress gets all excited. She says, oh, my gosh, I have to give you our dessert menu because you get a free dessert on your birthday. And according to Matt, I had a physical reaction to that statement. I was like, and he made fun of me relentlessly and still, still is making fun of me relentlessly. But it was a, like, it was an uncontrollable thrill of hope. Like there was a dessert coming my way at the end of this meal. And it's crazy, right? Like Matt was buying my lunch. I wasn't even going to pay for the dessert anyway, but it was just like free dessert, you know, a thrill of hope. But as thrilling as free dessert is, right, it pales in comparison to the thrill of hope that Jesus brings as he ushers in this new and glorious day, the dawning of his kingdom on earth. And what's our response? Well, the chorus tells us, fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. 
O night divine, O night when Christ was born. The stars are shining, the angels are singing, the weary world is rejoicing. The only proper response to a night like this and a God like that is to just fall on our knees and worship. It's a beautiful picture. Okay, let's jump into the second verse. Now, this verse is actually kind of obscure. I've I've never heard it sung or recorded anywhere, and we don't sing it here, so I'm just going to kind of show you the whole thing quickly. So it says, led by the light of faith serenely beaming, with glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. So led by a light of stars sweetly gleaming, here come the wise men from Orient land. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials born to be our friend. So my guess is that these lyrics are completely new to you, unless you've done some research and read kind of about this song. And the, the song kind of takes a little bit of a detour here. I don't know if you noticed, it, or if you noticed, it shows us the perspective of the wise men coming to see Jesus which is kind of cool, but also kind of strange, right? Like it's just this weird kind of detour. But I really love that last line, and that's why I wanted to show it to you. In all our trials, born to be our friend. In all our trials, born to be our friend. This is a reference to Jesus talking with the disciples on the night of the Last Supper. During what would be his final teaching time, he lays out the central practice of Christianity in the simplest terms. He says this, my command is this, love one another as I have loved you. That is the central practice that Christians are supposed to be about. Jesus said, my command is this, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus says the most important thing that we can do is love others. And we don't get to define, right, what love looks like. Jesus says, love others as I have loved you. Now, how did he love us? Well, the verse goes on. Jesus says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command, which is to love. And I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus was born to be our friend, and he calls us to be a friend to anyone and everyone we encounter through this practice of sacrificial love. Okay, time for the third and final verse, which is also my favorite. Now, in order to feel kind of the full weight of these lyrics, we have to go back to the story of John Sullivan Dwight for just a second. Do you remember what year I said he came across this song? 1855. Does anyone know what was happening in America in 1855? We were on the brink of civil war. At that time, we were divided into slave states where slavery was legal and free states where slavery was illegal. And over the next six years, 11 southern states would cede from the United States primarily over the issue of slavery, bringing about the start of the civil war. But what you have to understand about John Sullivan Dwight is that he was a staunch abolitionist. He hated slavery. At a time when over half the published arguments in favor of slavery were being written by Christian pastors, this ex-clergyman, John Sullivan Dwight, was publishing what would become an anthem of the abolitionists. Here's what verse 3 says. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name 
all oppression shall cease. That's why John Sullivan Dwight published this in Dwight's magazine of music. He loved the rest of it. He loved the O Night Divine. He loved the Christ that's born. He loved all of that. But when he read verse 3, he was reminded of the words of Jesus. And Jesus' very first sermon back in his hometown, Luke chapter 4, records the story. When Jesus came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. And then he began to speak to them. And he said, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Jesus came to proclaim the release of the captives, to set the oppressed free. By all accounts that I read, John Dwight loved Christmas. But his love for Christmas paled in comparison to his passion to end slavery in America. And he hoped that this song would be a part of making that happen. So in 1855, he published Oh Holy Night in Dwight's Journal of Music, and the song absolutely took off, gaining popularity, especially in the North, <laughs> during the Civil War. But as you can imagine, not everyone loved it, including many religious leaders. Because in addition to over half of the published defenses of slavery being written by pastors in the South, the largest Protestant denomination in the world, the Southern Baptist Convention, was founded a few years before in 1845 for the sole purpose of allowing clergy and missionaries to continue enslaving black people. But John Sullivan Dwight was undeterred. Even under threat, he continued promoting O Holy Night until it became a song known across all of the United States. And through the sacrificial work of abolitionists like him, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, William Lloyd Garrison, and many others, slavery was finally outlawed in 1865. Now, obviously, we still have a lot of work to do in order to help America live up to its promise to provide liberty and justice for all. But John Sullivan Dwight was right about the impact he hoped a holy night would have. The song became exceedingly popular among abolitionists, and it was a significant boon in the movement to set the slaves free. Y'all, this is the legacy of the song we just sang. This is the legacy of O Holy Night, and we celebrate it, whether we know about it or not, every single time we sing it. In his book about this song and a bunch of other Christmas songs, a guy named Ace Collins says this, this incredible work requested by a forgotten parish priest, written by a poet who would later split from the church, giving soaring music by a Jewish composer and brought to Americans to serve as much as a tool to spotlight the sinful nature of slavery as to tell the story of the birth of a savior. This incredible work has grown to become one of the most beautiful, inspired pieces of music ever created. I agree. 
And so the song ends like this. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. My friends, we cannot reduce praising Jesus and declaring that Christ is Lord to words alone. As I said last Sunday, the Christmas story is not just a charming anecdote about a cute baby. It is the pronouncement of a profound shift in the cosmos, a turning point in the history of the world. That holy night was just the beginning. Jesus was born, he lived, he died, he rose again, and now he reigns forever. So to sing that Christ is Lord is to declare our allegiance to him and to his kingdom. It is a commitment to pursuing the way of Jesus, which means participating in his mission of serving the poor, releasing the captives, setting the oppressed free, and proclaiming the good news that God's grace and hope and love has been freely offered to all people. When we sing that, we declare our allegiance to that mission. To help us remind us of that, as we leave today, Matt and Ava are going to come back up, and they're going to lead us in a holy night one more time. And as they do, my encouragement to you is this. Don't just sing it the same way you've sung it a thousand times. Remember, this is an abolitionist anthem. Sing and declare that you want to be used by Jesus to help set people free to break whatever chains are keeping them from experiencing the fullness of God's love. That's the true mission and meaning of Christmas. Let's pray.